So I was, you know, I, we, before we uh, came on here this, this afternoon, I was looking mm-hmm. up some exciting cat news and I, I noticed a real trend of people taking their cats out on adventures and walks. And, uh, you know, I get to thinking about how we don't always guide clients. We don't always have time to guide clients on how they interact with their cats and how they keep their environment enriched. Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Purr Podcast. Welcome everyone and we're very happy to have you back. So we have some news today because we have once again a special guest and that's Dr. Kelly St. Denise. Hello Kelly. Hello Yola. It is so I'm it's so great to be back again. It's Thank always fantastic me. to have you on the podcast and uh, <laughs> Dr. Susan was a little busy uh, this week so uh, uh, we wish her good luck and she asked me if uh, if you could jump in and as a matter of fact you're now a co-host but this is the first time that we will spar together we don't have a special guest i know it's kind of exciting and challenging all at the same time yeah so you <laughs> are the host and the special guest at the same time and the special guest <laughs> yes. and, and you will have to fill uh, susan's uh, i cannot say big shoes because then she will send me a tweet immediately that <laughs> that's not true and no. uh, you will fill her uh, enormous shoes well i'm always glad to be able to help susan out uh, like I, I think i've said before she's been a great mentor to me and a friend in the past it's always fun to do things for her and especially on this per podcast it's just a blast so that's yeah, awesome. Happy. Thank you, Kelly. So, so what we're really going to talk about is uh, hot cat news. We do this uh, occasionally that we just stop the interviews to have a little bit of different flavor, and we, uh, you know, go on the internet and look at cat news and discuss it and see what's real and what's not. And uh, so, um, the first question I have for you, because this is uh, absolutely uh, not prepared and also not. Uh, you know, rehash and that sort of thing. So it's all very raw. Uh, the first mm-hmm. question I have for you. So in, in, in the entire feline medicine arena, what is your favorite topic? What is the topic that you love to talk about the most? Wow, that's a hard one. And I think oh, probably the thing that's closest to my heart is what we refer to as feline friendly handling, um, which we're trying to transition to call feline friendly interaction in the veterinary clinic. So how we um, meet with and visit with our feline patients in the veterinary clinic and what we do when they're with us. Now we used to talk about it as handling and then, and that's still a term that's commonly used, but we're trying to transition away from that to feline friendly interactions um, just to try and change the way people think about how we interact with cats in general, but especially in the vet clinic. That's probably one of my things I like lecturing the most about. And I like sharing with other veterinarians and veterinary students. And and that's really funny because one of the first things I wanted to talk about is this HuffPost. So I'm now on the HuffPost entertainment slash topic slash cat site. And they have the favorite tweets of the week. And uh, this was one of the favorite, funniest cat tweets. Uh, 
Uh, one of my favorite scientific discoveries in recent years is that among domesticated animals, dogs recognize the difference between themselves and people. But cats just think the people who live with them are terribly incompetent cats. <laughs> And I, that's probably true, right? And then for those of us at the vet clinic, when they come to the vet clinic, they probably mostly recognize us as potential predators. Uh, so I think they're they're pretty savvy that way and, and need to sort of get a better understanding of what's going on with us when they come to see us. Yeah, and so we need to adapt. And, and we talked with uh, Dr. Liz O'Brien about this uh, quite in, in, in extent. We so we really need to adapt our clinics to make our cats feel at home. And I like the fact that you're changing handling because handling means I always see big blankets and, and very scared cats and, and, and all these things. While on the other hand, you have videos on the internet now that people just have giving cats a little bit of food and do away doing a blood sample without even a cat noticing. So there's so many things that you can learn in this arena to make cats a little bit more happy in a environment that's really strange to them. So for yeah. me, if, if I look at a, a dog coming into a clinic, his tail is wagging and he's a little curious, but it's more curiosity than really uh, being afraid. When a cat comes to the clinic, they're like, what is going on here and what are they going to do to me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people forget, veterinarians and pet owners alike forget that cats are not just predators themselves, but they're also prey. So that means that when they do come to the clinic, like I said earlier, they are potentially considering that we're looking to eat them for lunch, <laughs> so to speak, right? So we're a threat. Uh, and, and so we have to somehow convey to that cat that we're not a threat and you know we're just there to interact with them. And obviously we have a, sh a set list of things we need to do for that cat while it's there, but how do we do that without really alarming them or making them feel like we're on the, on the, on the cusp of eating them for lunch? Yeah, that reminds me of a movie, and I remind that the you know the, the sentence that I remember is uh, one he says, "I have a friend for dinner." Yeah, right. Uh, exactly. Right. So then, Anthony Hopkins. Really, yeah, and it's one of those things that, in especially in with COVID, but in general, when practices are so busy, there's a checklist of things you need to do when a patient comes in. You're in a rush. There's so many other things going on. And it's like, I, you know, Dr. Shirk refers to this as getting the cat processed. It's like when you go to a clinic, they process you, right? You sit, you wait, they call your name, they do what they need to do. But if we are behaving like that around cats, then we're just making it much worse for them if they're being processed as opposed to interacted with. And we find ways to get things done without stressing them out is the best approach. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, uh, so thanks for that input. Mm. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, let's see. Uh, do you have a topic you want to talk about? So I was, you know, I, we, before we uh, came on here this, this afternoon, I was looking mm -hmm. up some exciting cat news and I, I noticed a real trend of people taking their cats out on adventures and walks. And, uh, you know, I get to thinking about how we don't always guide clients. We don't always have time to guide clients on how they interact with their cats and how they keep their environment enriched. And it's kind of become a popular thing now to, for cats to have outdoor access. And whether it's like 
um, Dr. Ken Lambrick's cat Bug, who has her own Facebook page and, and travels all over the world, right? Or someone's building their cat a catio. Uh, I think that's something that's becoming more popular, and it looks like, especially on the news, uh, we probably need to look at guiding our clients a little better in what they can and can can't do, and what they sh- how they should approach it if they want to try. I think a good example I think of is my daughter is um, fostering a mum cat right now, and she's hoping to have one of the kittens and her goal is to try and get the kitten to be a cat like bug and bugs cat adventures you know that she'll go with her everywhere but i think there's some question as to whether cats can do that just off the hop based on their personalities they may not be the kind of cat that wants to travel everywhere they may not want to be out on a leash they may want not want to go hiking for example so it's kind of an interesting uh thing that's going on right now there's a real a real drive for that for cats to go places with their people as opposed to just staying at home yeah i think it's a really good point uh, and i think bug is definitely the exception cat um, yeah. you know it's such an amazing cat and and i think that uh, that uh, that uh, he's done such a good job with uh, with bug uh, but uh, yeah it it I wonder if the you know bug is obviously very happy, but I wonder if you put your cat in that situation if they're really happy themselves. Yeah, and it seems like just like people, there's different personality types. And bug's an adventurer. She's but she's pretty calm. I mean, I'm sure you've seen her. I've sat in the airport with her, and she just hangs out and isn't bothered by things around her. She's been out hiking with Ken in the mountains. She's been all over the world. And I don't think that's a, a every cat's personality. Some of them are going to be genuinely afraid. And especially if they are not very young and they've been in the house the whole time, their whole life, you know, suddenly changing to this adventurous outdoor lifestyle is probably not going to be for that cat. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. A really good point. So uh, I always wonder with, uh, with all that, you know, we have a lot of cats that, uh, that are social media, uh, Quite a, a, of quite social media stars. I'm always wondering how happy those cats are themselves to be a social media star, and what they need to go through to become a social media star. With you know all the crazy things that are happening, I think that Dr. Susan and I spoke one time about the cat that was sitting on uh, the little vacuum on my vacuum cleaner, but was yeah. not looking that happy about it. So it was very cute, but um, in a way we also sometimes abuse our animals in, in a fashion that might not be very good for the cat. Yeah, and, and they, that's one of the considerations for sure is to understand that cat's personality, but also read its stress cues, which, as we know, because cats are so good at hiding everything because of their more recent domestication, it is really difficult for owners to tell if their cat is stressed. So when they're trying to do things like this or they're dressing their cat up for Halloween, which is also not really recommended, Um, we're potentially stressing them out, but how do they read those cues? And really that can be challenging for, for a lot of clients. And I mean, veterinarians as well to understand where this, if the cat is stressed. Yeah. So can you tell a little bit about those cues? What kind of cues uh, uh, would you, would you specifically look for? I think there's some aspects of their facial expression that would probably tell us, but also their body language and their activity level. So, I mean, the good example is, the cat that's being dressed up if they're you know uncomfortable in that kind of situation where there's clothing or a costume being put on them they're not going to move around as much and they may walk more slowly if they are moving around 
uh, and they're, they're, they may just not be as alert in, in their looks and the way they're interacting with the environment around them. So they may be very preoccupied um, as opposed to, you know, looking around the environment. So yeah, I, th I think there's some indication, like unless they're actually enjoying it, then they're running around and playing and doing all their normal things. If they're, people are dressing their cats or trying to make them walk on a leash, I mean, you hear people talk about, you know, you put a harness on a cat and the cat just falls over. <laughs> I think that's yes. that the cat doesn't like the harness. And so I was doing some reading before we got on today. And I know the, a the ASPCA has some websites on choosing your harness and then leash training the cat as well to go very slowly in a stepwise fashion to see if you can even get your cat comfortable with any of these things that you want to try to explore with them. And if they really don't go for it, then you really shouldn't push, push. I have a good example too, because you know, my experience with like chest bandages and cats or bandages in general in cats. So some cats are okay with it, but a lot of cats really don't like them. And I remember mm -hmm. one specific cat we had a, a, we did a chest surgery on. And so it was a big lateral incision, a thoracolomy, and the cat was so depressed. And I was like, you know, the, the surgery itself went really good and there were no complications. I mean, there was no air in the chest. They pulled the chest up very early. So everything looked like the cat should be recovered very quickly. But a day or two later, the cat was still super depressed and didn't want to eat, didn't want to do anything. I was just laying in the cage, um, not really being painful. So it was in an inter-scale unit and we have a primus scale. They used it. It didn't look like he was really in pain, but he was just out of it. And, uh, and, and at a certain point, I was wondering, you know, what are the things that really would depress a cat? And I was like, hmm, I wonder if the bandage is the problem, because you normally with chest surgery, we do a bandage for a couple of days. And the moment I took that bandage off, the cat was running in his cage, eating, <laughs> being happy, and just being a completely normal cat. And I was like, oh my, I should have thought of that immediately after that cat was so depressed for a full day. We thought there were, you know, you always as a vet think that the most horrible things are happening to your cat. Yeah. But it was, it was just that stupid bandage. He didn't like the bandage. And I sometimes think back to uh, my days when I used to do large animal, uh, which was for a very short period of my career. But, you know, one of the things that we used to do to get a cow to lay down was to tie a uh, harness rope around their neck and then around behind their shoulders and a little further and pull. And it's the same kind of idea. You're putting pressures in certain places on that animal that make, make them not want to stand up and don't, you know, they don't feel comfortable. So they lay down, you know, and whether that's uh, an appropriate thing to do it. And when you're in large animal, it's so difficult because the animals are large, but I always think back to that simple technique. You don't have to be a really large person to handle a bovine because you can use those kinds of techniques. And so when I'm thinking about bandaging and clothing on cats, it's, I always think the similar is a similar kind of phenomenon that's making them not want to stand up or not move around. They're just not comfortable with it. I love that idea. And I love that, that, that comparison because it's so true. You know, I, I remember with the cows too, I never understood why. And I always said cows are not very clever, so that's why they do it. But yeah, it might be pressure points. So uh, a, a very good example of uh, acupressure and uh, and doing with minimal force what what an animal really doesn't want to do. And, and with the cat, it was very obvious. And, and uh, there's a variation in there. So cats are so individual that some cats handle vendors really well. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and other cats just totally freak out. I, I know another story about a cat that had a, uh, we did a wonderful mesh graft on that cat and he had a chronic wound on his tail and there was this, this owner that did not want to have the tail amputated because that was of course my first, because his distal tail, I said, just amputate it, you're done within a week and everything's healed. But they didn't want to because it was very special to the cat and the cat would have a you know personality uh, crisis if we would take that tail according to the owner. So we decided to do a mesh graft and with those mesh crafts, you know that they have to stay on for a couple of days without removing the bandage. And the tail bandage is really difficult in general, but you know, <laughs> with this cat, you know, that cat woke up and freaked out. I mean, this and it was slamming everywhere. It escaped one time, I remember, and it was dragging that bandage and tail through the gutters while we're trying to catch it again. It was crazy. And once again, as soon as the bandage went off, the cat was totally normal. Um, so there is some variation in there. We had to sedate this cat for a couple of days to be yep. able to keep the bandage on uh, because we couldn't take it off, otherwise it would have destroyed the, the mesh graft. And then the funny thing is, of course, you don't make these things up, but this is one of one of my mesh grafts that I'm most proud of because we took the mesh graft from a long-haired set. So it was, a, it was a domestic short hair, but it has some areas that were long hair and the tail was really long hair. So we took a long haired area uh, that matched the color of the tail. Uh, clever. Turned out so well. It was just unbelievable. The cat had a normal tail afterwards. So so the owner was super happy that, oh my gosh, I still get a headache if I think about that cat and that bandage. Yeah, I think they just, I mean, maybe it's like we said, the pressure points, maybe it's uh, the they think whatever it is, is hurting them or is going to hurt them. I don't know. Can't, can't get inside of the cat's head to understand everything that's going through their minds. Right? That is so true. Although I do think that sometimes cats have a mind of their own. So yes. we, can, we can think of a lot of reasons why they should do this, but they don't. Yeah. Yeah, and that sort of really gets back to interacting with cats either at home or in the clinic is giving them choice in what they do. And that's sort of one of the premises that I based my own practice on is if you're doing something and a cat's on the exam table and it wants to get down, then you let it get down and take a break. So, and at home, it's the same thing. We, we see issues with people with their children maybe overhandling the cat and not giving that cat the choice to have freedom or to do whatever it needs to do and that really can stress them out and maybe that's kind of the same idea too i don't know bandages are impacting them the same way too but they are definitely creatures of their own minds <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely um i saw some uh you know this is a news uh, uh news thing that uh, was a couple of cats were uh, rescued by the thai navy I don't know if you saw that from a burning ship. Yeah, I saw that were, one too. They were stuck on a burning ship, and uh, and these, they're, you know, they they rescued them, and you see a Thai Navy man swimming in the sea and a cat on his head uh, going for rescue. So let's talk a little bit about cats and water because there's so many different theories here. Some people say cats hate water, but if you look at a tiger, for instance, they're in the water without any problems. They love to mm. swim, and they're really good swimmers, as a matter of fact. And I've seen cats, uh, there are some videos of cats where you can see that they're totally normal in the water, and there's, as a matter of fact, really good swimmers too. So what is it with water and cats? Oh, I wish I had the answer to that question. 
Uh, I really can't tell you, Yola. I know that I've had a lot of clients, just like you've said, that have had cats that actually like water. They'll jump in the shower or the bathtub with, with, the, with the client. Um, but the majority of cats just seem to be not comfortable with it. And I think, I mean, we see that they can swim, right? I mean, they, they sort of generate an instinctive doggy paddle if they're in the water, they're stuck in the water. Um, and we know a lot of people who use rehab tanks and those cats, there's not that many cats that like those either, right? So when the water starts to fill in, there's kind of a limit to what some cats will tolerate as far as water depth Yeah. for the treadmills as well. Although I, I, I've seen rehab cats swim. I mean, it was uh, once again in Thailand, they, they had a beautiful, at Katsatsat University, had a beautiful pool uh, that was donated by the royal family there. And they showed a cat swimming, doing laps in that pool that was in rehab. And that cat mm -hmm. was completely at ease. It, you know, once again, we look at facial grimace scale and that sort of things. That cat was as happy as a clown. And as a matter of fact, as soon as they put them on the side because you would say okay now the cat has his chance and runs away it just dove back in the water because he was so happy there so and i think in these rehab treadmills a lot of times when they're working with cats they just take it even slower as the tank fills and maybe do just small amounts yeah. the first few times and then gradually increase but there's another kind of funny cat i know we had a clinic cat for years her name was fuchsia and she was obsessed with water so I don't know that she would have necessarily liked to be immersed in water, but she played with water. She would spill her water everywhere. If someone left the toilet seat up, she she would just play in the water and splash all over the bathroom and then come out soaking wet. And so there's a lot of cats like that, too, that seem to like to play in the water, but probably wouldn't necessarily, you know, want to be swimming. <laughs> Obviously, they need water. They need water to survive. And, and we talked about this, too, that... You know, cats need a lot of water. I mean, they're really good in concentrating their urine, but uh, they need to have a basic amount of water to be able to survive, like everybody does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and some of them get that their diet, and some of them have to drink it. So, yeah. Yeah, and especially cats that have certain diseases like renal failure, we do recommend to increase the water intake of these cats, you know, just to yeah. be able to, to deal with the kidney that's not working. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. well so so the last question i have for you for this episode is and then uh, we'll see you next week again is um because we're almost at, at the end it's crazy we haven't even started talking it goes by. It it, go by. is is the fact that uh this week in the news uh they rescued uh i don't know 40 plus cats from a tiger haven and mm. we had in the news because we're in the US, so people are a little crazy. Uh, in Florida, a tiger running just loose in uh, in the neighborhood because someone uh, had a tiger at home and he escaped. Um, cats are very, very uh, not strange to things. We're very particular, and 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 I think a lot of people think that uh, these large cats kind of behave like pussycats in the beginning until they realize that people can be a nice piece of meat too. So um, what is our attraction to these large cats and, and how dangerous is it really to have right. one of those cats? I think just for some people, it's just another step up from, you know, interacting and having something that's a pet that's exciting and you know, noteworthy to people around them. I don't know if they get a lot of gratification out of it, but it is definitely not something that is recommended and is so dangerous. 
And I mean, even some of these larger breed cats that we're starting to see people breeding and selling and keeping, um, it really is alarming that, that we're starting to get bigger and bigger cats because we, we these cats are wilder. There's no doubt about it. And when we think about dogs from the Chihuahua to the Great Dane, they've been domesticated for so long and, and they're, they were domesticated by us, whereas cats sort of have not been domesticated as long and they sort of domesticated themselves just hanging out with us. They're quite wild and even our house cats are wild, but when we start getting into these big cats, I mean, they're wild. It's like you just said, at some point those cats might become upset or hungry or angry and then what happens when they weigh so much more than you and have so many weapons? It's, yes. it's really not ideal for people to have those for pets. Yes. So I, I think you said it well, they're hunters. Of, of course, they're hunted too, but they are hunters and they will uh, they will respond to threats in, in quite an aggressive way because mm -hmm. they defend themselves. So they, they, and you know, little nails can cause quite a lot of damage, but imagine what these big paws do. And then I remember I, I did surgery on a tiger because of a, uh, um, you know, kidney problem, one of the kidneys uh, uh, had a uh, hydro kidney or hydronephrosis, and we had to take that kidney out, which was a challenge on itself. Um, yeah. But it was just amazing when the cat was anesthetized, which I didn't have to do myself, I think a lot. But uh, <laughs> when they anesthetize the cat, it's amazing how big those claws are, how strong these cats are, mm -hmm. uh, how big the mouth is and the, the teeth in, you know, it is, they are impressive animals when they're full size. So I can only imagine what happens if, you know, if they're in this adolescent. So I can imagine if you're a kitten, you think everything is cool and fine. But when you get in this, do this adolescent phase, uh, yep. you know, as a female large predator, you, you need to defend your, your, your babies. And as a male large predator, you have to, and, and you have to feed them. And as a male large predator, you have to kill other males and you have to feed yourself and, and you have to protect your pride. So, you know, that doesn't really fit into a little American household, I would guess. So so I think a lot of people don't understand how dangerous these animals are. And, and you can ask yourself if this is really good for that animal too, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, I think cats already... We love cats. Cats, um, how do you say that? Cats allow us, <laughs> you know? It's not that they love us back, but they allow us whenever they want. Um, but these big cats probably don't. And yeah. uh, maybe in the beginning you could feed them, but yeah. It's, yes, it's, sure. it's a worrisome trend, that's for sure. Hey, we have reached the end. This was really cool. So uh, this was the first part. Um, thank you for being here. We'll be uh, we'll be back next week with another hot topic uh, discussion because I have so many other topics I want to discuss. Um, so Very thanks cool. for being here. Thank you, Yola, for inviting me. This was a great episode. So we talked about water and cats, cat behavior, how to adapt your clinic. And uh, at the end, we talked about big cats, too, and what you should and should not do. This is the Per Podcast. If you like our show, uh, please go to our website, perpodcast.net. And uh, we also have a podcast handle, at Per Podcast. Uh, and we also have a uh, podcast for cat owners, which is called Cat Cafe Podcast. So if you like us, give us a five-star review and uh, tell your neighbor. Thank you very much, Kelly, and see you next week. 
next week. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast. 